it's time to take the quiz. Five questions, five minutes a day, five days a week. Take the quiz every weekday at thequiz.fox and then listen to the quiz podcast to find out how you did. Play, share, and of course, listen to the quiz at thequiz.fox. News Radio Studios in New York City. Fresh off the set of Fox and Friends, it's America's receptive voice, Brian Kilmeade. Yeah, when it's possible, I would love to hear some solutions, and we're trying to get there. Jamie Metz will be with us too. Jamie Metzl's uh, is an advisor to the WHO, was born on the forefront of the origins of the virus, and talks about how, what is it like in China now. She would even be going to the Olympics, knowing what we know about how this pandemic that killed hundreds of thousands of Americans really took root and how they're not being transparent. Jamie Metz will be here, too. He's a senior fellow at the Atlantic Council. He's got another column out that he wants to, to share with us, allowing a uh, – he wants to push to have uh, an international investigation of the origins uh, we, he wants to see it now. That would be a way of bringing the world together rather than the Olympic Games without fans and without journalists and without broadcasters on the premises. So let's get to the big three. Now with the stories you need to know, it's Brian's Big Three. Number three. The Russians are likely to want to fabricate a pretext uh, for an invasion. We believe that Russia would produce a very graphic propaganda video, uh, which would include corpses and images of destroyed locations, uh, as well as military equipment, uh, at the hands of U- Ukraine or the West. That is John Kirby talking about classified information, no longer classified. Get this, Russian actors might just be faking a Ukrainian attack uh, and start the biggest war in Europe in 80 years. That's the bizarre report we're getting from the state and defense. We bring you the latest on uh, what Congress is saying and why Marco Rubio said this is the biggest threat to Europe since World War II. Number two. I did a quick Google search, John, to see who had covered this Johns Hopkins study, and I came up with Daily Mail, New York Post, Fox News. I guess a lot of major news organizations didn't want to embrace the idea of locking down mask mandates and the like uh, may have had very little effect on the death rate. Uh, Howie Kurtz, pretty astonished, as I am, ignoring the endemic because you want to control the pandemic. My only conclusion is our government and left-wing outlets are ignoring diminishing Omicron uh, cases and hospitalizations and the studies show masks don't work we know the vaccines have been ineffective against this variant for the most part so let's sideline joe rogan for questioning common uh, the common wisdom of the day which oftentimes turns out to be wrong number one this spring the justice department will issue a final rule to regulate these so-called ghost guns police departments report sharp increases and the number of ghost guns found at crime scenes. That's why today the department is launching an, intes- an intensified national ghost gun enforcement initiative. Oh my goodness, what is he even saying? President Biden shows he recognizes crime as a major American problem, but will he show the courage to take on his enablers in his party, the DAs who think criminals are first and their priority? A party who shout out to dismantle and reimagine and defund the police over the last two years. We look at his blame the gun cure for what ails every major city, and I see a huge problem. And you know who knew the, knows the difference? Democratic Mayor Eric Adams. He came out and said, I got to give judges the discretion to keep dangerous suspects in jail until their trial date. I want to uh, revisit no cash bail. It's not working. Okay? And then I also want to get guns off the streets. Well, how do you do that? Well, an anti gun unit, that'll certainly help. 
But not the way you have the plainclothes unit up now. They're all wearing the same thing, wearing big body cams. That's not the way to infiltrate the gun community. Got it? Next, go back to stop, question, stop, uh, question, and frisk. That's what you got to do. Because evidently, if you talk to these cops, you say, what are you trained to do when it comes to guns? He goes, I can always tell when someone has a gun. Whether it's on their ankle or around their waist, you can always tell, or in their jacket. And why? Well, as soon as you walk up on them, they grab it. Number two is you see the way they walk. But what happens is, unless you have a definite reason to suspect them, like the way they're walking, unless they've done some transgression, you have no reason to do it. So they actually walk it around with guns right in front of cops. And cops saying, listen, I'm not, I'm not dealing with this. I'm not dealing with a lawsuit that I'm not protected on, that the union probably can't fight back on. So go, get going. You have a gun, go. I'm sure you have it, but I'm not allowed to stop questioning first, so you're going to keep going. So President Biden just brought up what I feared he would only bring up, and that is about cops. Now, one thing is true. He never said specifically to fund the police. Cut one. It's enough. Enough is enough because we know we can do things about this, but for the resistance we're getting from some sectors of the government and the Congress and the state legislatures and the organizational structures out there. You know, uh, Mayor Adams, you and I agree. The answer is not to abandon our streets. That's not the answer. The answer is to come together, the police and communities, building trust and making us all safer. The answer is not to defund the police. It's to give you the tools, the training, the funding to be partners, to be protectors. Right. he has $350 billion he gave to states. He said, spend it on cops. But you never said spend. you have to spend it on cops. That's the problem. So a lot of these states are sitting on money they never asked for in that $1.9 trillion rescue plan he's so happy about that fueled inflation like nothing else. Also, I have some good news. Instead of losing 300,000 jobs that the so-called experts said we would lose, we gained 467,000 jobs, and labor petition patient weight went up slightly to 62.2%. But that also includes retirees. So... That is good news on the economy, right? Not good news when it comes to crime and not a good plan when it comes to fighting crime. More from Eric Adams. Now, he did not say to with the president there that he said to us earlier, which I stated two minutes ago, about what else has to be done besides the guns. Cut for. Mr. President, I thank you for your response. And then I ask him to go on the ground because it's about intervention and prevention. And prevention are the long-term things we need to do. I ask him to go on the ground with us to meet the crisis management teams, the everyday people who are doing the hard work in alignment with the police department. All right. Uh, He got on the ground. Uh, He was there an hour and a half late, but he had a reason. He had to announce a terror attack that went extremely well. Uh, We attacked the terrorists. Good news in Syria. Just for the record, on that very attack, it was uh, laudable. The special ops were again. I guess they were all vaccinated. That's why they did so well. And they were able to take out this guy in a sustained interaction with uh, the al-Baghdadi's replacement of ISIS. And they killed him, and he killed his family because he detonated a belt, evidently. So having said that, you know, did you see Donald Trump say he deserves no credit for it? Did you see Donald Trump say, well, that was one of my troops that I put in place? No. Do you know what, he, what, what Joe Biden said in 2019 when— under the order of President Trump, they took out al-Baghdadi. They did it in spite of his inept leadership. Military did this. Don't give Donald Trump credit for this. Classless. And I know what it's like. I understand politics, but that was classless then. And I'm glad the president, uh, the former president didn't say anything now. 
So what the president said yesterday and what he didn't say yesterday is key. It did not elude Lieutenant Randy Sutton. He wanted to know that he was going to side with the cops and away from the criminals against these lenient DAs in San Francisco, Los Angeles, Kim Fox in Chicago, and Alvin Bragg in New York. That didn't happen. Cut eight. What I heard today was um, shameful. The, the reality is that ghost guns, I don't even know one police officer who has ever actually investigated uh, a, a murder involving a ghost gun. This is a diversion. That's all this is. This is just about not holding criminals accountable for their crimes. That's what this is all about. You won't ever hear the president, you won't ever hear uh, Governor Hochul uh, talk about the criminal. They'll only talk about the gun, an inanimate object. They'll never talk about the person who is using the weapon. And, and you can put a, a million gun laws on the books if the judges and the prosecutors, like Alvin Bragg, who is just a George Soros, a Trojan horse district attorney, if they don't prosecute, it means nothing. And they have not addressed that one little bit. And uh, in the lead editorial, the New York Post says uh, the headline is Biden failed to rise to the moment. And one excerpt I want to share with you, he could have called out the extremists in his own party who block even the most minor reforms. The conceit is the pandemic caused the U.S. urban crime wave, but at most it just accelerated the trends already underway, enabled by an ill-written reforms and a wave of anti-prosecution prosecutors winning office. When we come back, I say this is an endemic. I'm watching the case fall. I'm seeing Americans get back to work. I'm seeing what's happening in the U.K., Denmark, and Sweden. I'm seeing what's happening in Denver. I'm seeing the trends over in Iowa, uh, in Idaho, I should say, and Iowa. And I'm seeing what's happening in Wisconsin. America is ready to get back to work. Mr. President, you want a great moment? Explain to everyone we've got to live with it. Don't do what you did in July and say it's over. But live with it. Be responsible. You're on your own. When we come back, Dr. Jeanette Neshwat joins us to tell us what she sees, because she sees COVID patients every day. Am I overstating it? Am I over-optimistic? I don't think so. The doctor's next. It's Brian Kilmeade. The Will Cain Show is now dropping five episodes a week. Join Fox & Friends weekend host Will Cain as he tackles the latest headlines from his unique perspective, along with thought-provoking interviews with leading figures and live calls from viewers and listeners. Listen wherever you download your favorite podcasts. talk show that's real this is the brian kilmeade show with natural immunity that protection was better it was more durable and that's consistent with the cdc found so when we talk about the vaccinated and the unvaccinated the more precise language is the immune and the non-immune and we need mm -hmm. to really uh, recognize now that the unvaccinated they may have a good reason to be unvaccinated we don't know and um those who for example wear masks uh, they may have a good reason to wear masks. So we need to really respect one another uh, in this entire mm -hmm. debate. Yeah, that is uh, true. And people don't have any respect for anyone. If you don't wear a mask, you're a horrible person. If you do, you're capitulating to the man. 
Uh, but we know this. Uh, cloth masks, they've told us, not effective. Natural immunity, uh, according to a recent study done by Hopkins, very effective. Uh, the vaccines limit the symptoms, the, reportedly, if you actually get Omicron, but they don't stop it. You could still spread it. We also know uh, everything that is turned on its head, including the origin of the virus. Having said all that, Johns Hopkins does another study. Over the last two and a half years, they studied uh, of, of people that have, um, they've studied societies, about 2,000 people, and looked at the effects of uh, the lockdown shutdowns mandates on the health of society. It only presented points, it only prevented 0.02% of deaths. After two and a half years, not effective, and we should have known it if we studied what we did in 1918. It is time to admit this is over. Is that what uh, Dr. Jeanette Neshwat says? Uh, she joins us now, Fox News contributor. Uh, doctor, welcome back. Good morning, Brian. Thanks for having me. Yeah, so there's a, uh, there's a story out now that you put out, and you said the crime and mental illness is worse than COVID. Here's my solution to combating these issues. What is your solution? Well, first and foremost, number one, we have to uh, understand that a lot of mental illness is going untreated and undiagnosed. Um, we have up to 20% of people, who, prisoners, inmates, who have either schizophrenia, bipolar disease, severe depression. So we're throwing them in jail, then they're getting back on the street, back out on the streets because of the soft on crime policies of our district attorney. That needs to change. So keeping the criminals off the streets, behind bars where they belong, making sure we have good mental health services. On top of that, substance abuse, drug addiction, rehab, detox. So it's really a combination of the, the, what we need. Um, I did like the fact that our, our new mayor um, put out a 15-page um, blueprint of how he's going to tackle some of these issues. One of the things he's going to do is increase the, the amount of hospital-based violence intervention programs. He wants to cut down on illegal guns. That's great. But big problem is making sure that we know that criminals are fearful of committing crime because if they're not held accountable, Brian, if there are no repercussions, that just gives them the green light to do it again. So we need to tackle it from various angles. It, just like vaccines are not the only tool to fight COVID, um, you know, getting guns, illegal guns off right. the street is not the only tool. Well, let's to focus on the illness. Crime. Let's focus on the illness. Johns Hopkins University, yeah. Lund University in Sweden, and the Danish think tank, the Center for Political Studies, found the restrictions imposed since the spring of 2020, including stay-at-home orders, mass mandates, and social distancing, only reduced COVID mortality by point by 0.2 percent. What does that say about what we did and what we should do now? Well, we really we didn't need we didn't even need a study to tell us that. Look at the 900,000 deaths that we had, anyways. You know, many of the deaths were d during the, those lockdowns. So, it, what we've learned from this is that there was more harm from the lockdowns than any benefit for the majority of, of Americans. And like you mentioned earlier, when we looked at issues with the flu, so that killed thousands and thousands, millions of people, they knew back then that lockdowns weren't effective and that weren't, weren't going to work. So why on earth did we have, you know, who was it, Dr. Burks, Dr. Fauci, recommended this go around when they knew from history it wasn't effective? In fact, it led to anxiety and depression, economic damage, people committing suicide, turning to drug, drugs and, and alcohol, um, people losing their jobs, businesses closing. So it's just disastrous. We created more problems, more drama, uh, more chaos right. for our country. So than, what should we do now? Uh, Dr. Neshwad, you're yeah. absolutely true. It's absolutely right. So what should we do now? 
Is it time to do what Denmark and the U.K. and Sweden never locked down and just lift all restrictions, let live and let live? Because the coverage on the Hopkins study was zero NBC, zero ABC, and zero CBS. Johns Hopkins does a study, and suddenly no one's interested. So what we do now is learn from that mistake and understand we should never, ever, ever enter a lockdown ever again under any circumstances, and we should never close a school down ever again under any circumstances, no matter what disease is brewing. That's number one. Number two, it's still important to know your risk. If you have an outbreak in your community and you're undergoing chemotherapy, Protect yourself, wear your mask in public, get your vaccine. But that's it. Let's start treating this virus like the flu. So why can't you um, unify, Dr. Neshwa, why can't you unify other prestigious doctors like yourself and start calling press conferences and forcing these politicians to do it? We should. That's why we have to speak up, speak to our, our senators, our congressmen, um, you know, write letters to your mayor. That's what I what I did as well. And it's just we have to keep educating and pushing the truth and and point out the fact that these extreme draconian measures are causing more harm to society, to our children, to businesses than any than good. We should never have shut down, you know, Radio City Music Hall, the Rockettes. We should never have canceled football games um, over the holidays. It was completely unnecessary to do all of that. If you're sick, stay home. Get your vaccine. You know, wear your mask if you're high risk. And, and in, just in before public. you say mask, Dr. Neshwad, I know you know yeah. this, but let's make it clear. Let's listen. Remember what Dr. Uh, Scott Gottlieb said, and you agree. Cloth masks aren't yeah. going to provide a lot of protection. That's the bottom line. This is an airborne illness. We now understand that. And a cloth mask is not going to protect you from a virus that spreads through airborne uh, transmission. It Oops. could protect you. Two and a half years. Two and a half years. Yeah. He said what others uh, say, and it's a total waste of time. So unless you're wearing an N95 mask, which Correct. you shouldn't wear Correct. unless you have preconditions or you have the virus, let live and let yeah. live. Forget the mask. Exactly. It, especially for kids. The World Health Organization does not recommend masks for kids. I, I think it can cause more harm to their developmental growth and, and their social engagement interaction. But if you truly are, because we have 7 million Americans who are immunocompromised. If you truly are immunocompromised and you don't have natural immunity to wear that KN95, but for everyone else, if you have natural immunity or vaccine-induced immunity, that's it. We're not going to wear masks in perpetuity. This is not who we are, and it should be a choice. It should be a choice if you want to wear a mask. It should be a choice if you want to get vaccinated. You should get vaccinated, in my opinion. I can tell you that firsthand after taking care of over 20,000 COVID patients, and some of which have died and lost their lives, some of which could have been prevented by the vaccine. But know your risk and, and protect yourself. But at this point, Brian, um, it really should be a matter of a choice and move on with life. Let's treat this virus as we do other uh, seasonal respiratory illnesses. Thank gotcha. goodness we have the medicines that we need. We just need to ramp up the supply of those medications. Okay, it is over. Dr. Jeanette, uh, Dr. Jeanette is where you find you on Twitter. I uh, Have a great weekend. Thanks so much for your insight. A radio show like no other. It's Brian Kilmeade. I would say to our athletes, you're there to compete. Do not risk incurring the anger of the Chinese government because they are ruthless. I know there is a temptation on the part of some to speak out while they are there. I respect that. But I also worry about what the Chinese government might do to their reputations, to their families. 
Uh, but we won anyway. Nice telling me after we already sent the athletes there. That's the Speaker of the House, Jamie Metzl, member of the WHO Advisory Committee, senior fellow of the Atlantic Council and former National Security Council official in the Clinton administration, uh, joins us now, knows a lot about the origins of the virus, his uh, work at the WHO, his uh, passion and understanding of pandemics is invaluable. Jamie, welcome back. What do you think about the warning our athletes got from the Speaker? Thanks, Brian. Really happy to be back with you. So I understand why she's concerned uh, because our athletes really are at risk and we've put them at risk by sending them to these games that never should have been awarded to China in the first place. Um, the corporate sponsors seem to be on board. The media sponsors are on board. And now we have all this pressure on these athletes. And I, if, if I were an athlete, I hope I would have the courage um, to, to speak up, but the United States can't protect our, uh, our athletes. So I, um, I understand it. I don't. I feel like we've we've really pressured, put our athletes in a terrible lose lose situation because if they don't say anything, they're complicit with all these horrible things. But if they do say something, maybe they won't be able to compete, and their careers um, will be uh, will be at risk. So I'm understanding uh, the athletes are in a terrible position, and that's why we all need to come together and really fight for the things that we believe in, an end to the, the genocide in, in Xinjiang, a full investigation into the origins of the uh, of the pandemic, and so many other things. Right. A couple of things. Uh, with, for the first time, President Xi, since the pandemic started, never ended. Uh, he welcomed another leader to China, and that was Vladimir Putin. Great to us. Bad news for the world, uh, being sarcastic. Of course it is bad news. Yeah. Uh, so uh, they're teaming up, and now there's, no, there's no fans, no families, uh, the broadcasters are all stateside. This is something I expected maybe a year ago with Japan, who delayed it for a year. But since when are we dealing with this? How is that China's reality? According to them, air quotes, they only lost 5,000 people and they control the pandemic. We are having 100,000 people at college football games. Why, are no, why is no one allowed to go? Well, I think it's, it's pretty obvious that for the Chinese government, this is a propaganda spectacle. It has to do with them making the case to their own public and to the world that they can control all the variables. They can dictate what the Olympics looks like, who goes, what they say, uh, how it's broadcast. And so I get that China wants to do that, but why we and the international community, the International Olympic Committee, would hand them that propaganda opportunity on a silver platter. It's, it's unimaginable. I mean, we have to have basic standards, human rights standards, for who gets to host the Olympics and how they do it. Um, but if the whole thing is, well, let's find some dictator somewhere who's willing to spend a bunch of money um, to build up all the, uh, all the venues, uh, and then they can do whatever they want with the Olympics. That's not what the Olympic spirit is about. The Olympic spirit is about bringing people together around a common set of principles for building a better world. What we're seeing now is the opposite. Right, but they, it does look like they failed. If you can't fill up the stands, you failed. You know, if you can't bring broadcasting in there and let people think life's gone back to normal, we did it right, you failed. They're welding people into their apartments still, and there's no way, but they lost just 5,000 people. Uh, I have no idea of what's happened yeah. with Omicron yeah. there, in, in my view. Yeah. But, do you know, it turns out, nothing to do with you, Jamie, but it turns out there's only one other country that bid on the games, and it was Kazakhstan. Yeah. Winter games are no, losers. Uh, so. Well, it's true, but that's, that's part of the structure of the games. We've let these games become 
so ridiculously expensive that nobody wants to do it. And democracies don't want to do them because you have to justify the, the loss of billions of dollars. So maybe we just need to simplify the games, that every year the Winter Games are always in Switzerland. Uh, maybe uh, a different country gets to host the opening ceremony and do a little parade. But, but the Olympics have become something that, that is not entirely – it's partly grotesque. Um, and it's become part of this propaganda spectacle. It's not coincidental uh, that that the Russians hosted in Sochi, and they did basically this same thing. And now the the, uh, the Chinese in, in Beijing, if we don't want this to be the story of the Olympics, we need to build a new story based on the true uh, spirit of Olympism. All right, so, Jamie, you are heartened, you write, that we finally have a COVID-19 origins uh, committee, a 9-11 style committee, with uh, Senator Murray and Senator uh, Burr um, as c committee chairs uh, to head it up and do an investigation. Are you? Do you think we're going to get a non-political conclusion and investigation? Well, so so um, we don't have it yet, but there was a really encouraging story in the New York Times today uh, saying that there's now bipartisan support for this idea. So I'm I'm confident that we'll get it. And we're gonna, going to have to really dig, and it's going to be hard work. Um, I do think that there, I've always said that probing the origins of COVID-19 and our many failures across the board over time and uh, our people, presidents and administrations um, from both parties, um, we've failed. And we need to look at how we can do better. Our, our country is so divided, but there have to be areas where we can really come together. And my feeling is probing how this terrible pandemic started in China is one of those areas. And coming together to say, hey, what went wrong? How can we build a safer future so that we never have to face this kind of catastrophe again? We have to be able to come uh, together if we pass, if the, the, the bipartisan bill calling for a COVID-19 commission is passed, I think we can make a lot of, uh, of progress. Uh, yeah, I mean, we have to make progress on two, those two areas, and there's so much we don't know, uh, you, uh, even about the variants that are coming down the pike, and we don't know that. A lot has to do with the fact that we don't even know uh, officially how it started. We still have Anthony Fauci saying pretty consistently he believes it came from nature. How, how could that be the prevailing wisdom? And are you surprised emails reveal that when there was speculation that came up in 2020 about this coming from a lab? There was an immediate conference call, and everybody's story changed. Were you surprised to hear all that? I was surprised. I mean, as you know, Brian, in the earliest days of 2020, I just looked at the data and said, "Just this seems likely it could well have come from, uh, from a lab. It just seemed logical to me based on the data. Um, but even at those times, um, and especially at those times, there were some very prominent scientists, uh, people like, Christian Anderson and Bob Gary at Tulane and others, and they were just forcefully saying, we know it doesn't come uh, from a lab, we know it comes from nature, and they really set the agenda, particularly for the first year, and then there was a small number of, of us who were fighting against that, trying to raise questions, and eventually um, the tide started to turn. But now we realize that those exact scientists um, in private communications with each other were saying, hey, this looks like it could well come from a lab. And then three or four days, four or five days later, after uh, sending emails and, uh, to each other, making this case, 
then they all congeal around, oh, this what became this Nature Origins um, uh, paper um, that, uh, from March saying, oh, it's got to come from nature and saying yeah. it, it could come from a lab as a conspiracy theory. So I, that's what we really need to dig. Our systems didn't work. Uh, people weren't here, weren't as, as transparent. China, we know, has engaged in a massive cover-up. We need a structured process for digging, following the evidence, wherever it takes us. And it's going to be uncomfortable for people on all sides, um, on the Democratic side and the Republican side. Nobody's going to come out of this looking perfect, but we all we, we need to dig in order to build a safer future. Right, and the fact that we were scrambling instead of just being honest about it, it it's still a mystery to me what is really going on there. You know, if someone says, you don't look in that room— and I open up that door in the room, and it's a, and it's a, it, there's an explosion. I'm going. Why did you tell me not to look in that room? What like what were you hiding or not hiding? What were you so worried about, of of looking to lab leak if you weren't culpable at all? So I got to bring you to this Johns Hopkins study. So the question is: Number one, how did it happen? Number two, how did we react? So this is a review by Johns Hopkins, Lund University in Sweden, and the Danish think tank Center for Political Studies. And they found that restrictions imposed by spring 2020, and and my audience has heard me just say this to Dr. Neshwat, uh, that stay-at-home orders, mass mandates, and social distancing only reduced COVID mortality by 0.2%. The coverage of this Hopkins study got zero on NBC, zero on ABC, zero on CBS. Dr. Marty McCurry from Hopkins, listen. So over two years, it was about a quarter million people who died. Many, many scientists have not begun to peel back this number to understand why were more people dying than the normal death rate in the United States for reasons not related to COVID. Well, we're now understanding that 60 to 70,000 of them died from substance abuse, uh, deferred cancer care. That statistic takes years to accrue. Uh, We know about the self-harm and suicide numbers. And there are hundreds of kids in Baltimore alone that the teachers described never logged on to their virtual learning modules ever. And they were lost uh, for, to follow up forever in the school system. So we're now starting to recognize the collateral damage. And by the time we finally get the research that catches up with uh, public opinion, people may already have their own narrative written. So the, the lockdowns ineffective open up, correct? Say again? I'm sorry, Brian. Is it time to open up? Oh, you look at this. Well, high, I think. I mean, yeah, just so, I, and I, live with it instead yeah. of running and hiding from it. Yeah. So I, I think again, we need to follow the data. In the early days, there was a lot of fear, and we didn't really understand what we were facing. And so I, I do think that it seems, at least, like the lockdowns in the early days saved some lives or at least bought some time. But we can't live our entire lives locked down. Um, and so we have to open up our, uh, our, our societies. And, and that's why I think that we, we can't just – like our default setting can't be lockdown. Our default setting should be openness when there are moments when something terrible happens because we could have even worse variants. We could have entirely new pandemics that could be more deadly than this. So I wouldn't, I wouldn't ever say that – Locking down and masking right. are wrong, but that can't be our default. Our default should be openness, and then we should right. say, well, what's the minimum uh, disruption that will be necessary to keep us safe? And we can't get people to open up again. Uh, it's the craziest thing. I, we cannot get these cities, even when they get a governor in that says open up and let the parents make their own decisions, they don't want to do that. 
I've never seen anything like this in my life. And then they say, well, you got to wear a mask. You don't wear a mask. And then we're watching mainstream scientists like Dr. Scott Gottlieb say this. Cloth masks aren't going to provide a lot of protection. That's the bottom line. This is an airborne illness. We now understand that. And a cloth mask is not going to protect you from a virus that spreads through airborne uh, transmission. But I can't get on a plane without it. I can't go on a bus without it. And there's a lot of cities and schools that they don't let you go to walk the halls without it. When can we get the scientists to speak to the superintendents, to speak to the CEOs, to speak to the transit cops, to let us live our lives? And if we yeah. have underlying conditions, Jamie Metzl, then we know it. Wear an N95 mask because it protects you, not your neighbor. Yeah, so I mean, I think what Scott Gottlieb was saying was that the cloth masks don't work and N95 masks do work. Yes. And so you, you know, we all see the people with the bandanas like they're about to rob a bank in the Old West. And, and so that, that doesn't work. And so, you know, I, I do think that, that we just, we, again, we need to follow the data and see what's going to keep people safe. And it may be that there are certain enclosed spaces where we want to wear those N95 masks because... Exactly. A, but it protects you, it, Jamie. It, it, but, Jamie, it protects yeah. you. So if Jamie Metzl wants to be protected, you can do it. They say with the, they say with the paper mask, the cost mask, they say, well, that protects other people around you. Let's, let's just say you buy that, even though there's people that would dispute that. So let's say you yeah. buy that. Okay, I am, I'm not wearing a mask. I will take the risk. Now, Jamie Metzl doesn't want to take that risk, so wear the N95. So, so that's it. I'm not going to wear a fake a mask that doesn't do me any good, so you feel better, even though the facts say you shouldn't feel better because it doesn't do any good. So wear the yeah, well, N95 mask that. and let yeah. me get back to my life. Yeah, no, so I think N95, but I also think that, that there's a, a broader societal question. Like when you travel around in Japan, you see all of these people who are wearing these, these uh, paper masks. And in their culture, you wear it because you aren't feeling well and you want to protect other people. So I do think that we live in communities and, again, following the data, if there's things that we can do that aren't too much of an interference uh, with our lives that help uh, protect other people, even just a little bit, now, I think that's not a terrible thing but they to don't do. Work. But I, 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 well, but I do think, though, that, that I, I don't know if that's, um, if that's proven. Like, if, if everybody's wearing an N95 mask at a Well, we're not, no one's wearing it. No one will ever wear an yeah. N95 mask. Can't breathe. I don't need yeah. to do surgery today. Yeah. No, but the cloth masks, I agree. I mean, the cloth masks, There's a the, now that we know even more, there's a theatrical element uh, of that. And so if they don't really work, but it's just like like theater, then that's kind of silly in my view. Jamie, uh, thanks so much. Hopefully we'll get that committee going and we'll see what their conclusions are and they, and they approach it honestly like they did not the 9-11 commission. Jamie Mitzel, thanks so much. Thanks so much, Brian. Always my pleasure to join you. You got it. one 408 7669 I'll be back with your calls in just a moment. Brian Kilmeade Show. This weekend, check out Brian's new show on Fox News Channel. Because apparently he's cheaper than infomercials for non-stick pans. That is not true. <laughs> Chill out, Gutfeld. That really hurts. One Nation with Brian Kilmeade. Saturdays at 8 p.m. Eastern on Fox News Channel. More of Brian coming up. The more you listen, the more you'll know. It's Brian Kilmeade. My point is, we all exist 
in this world and on this planet. And there's no question that there is egregious misinformation that's purposeful and hateful and all those other things. And that being moderated is a credit to the platforms that run them. And I know it's a difficult thing, but this overreaction to Rogan, I think is a mistake. I really do. That's saying a lot because they say 67% of liberal Democrats want government to rein in misinformation of social media platforms. 67% according to Pew Research for, uh, poll. But that is John Stewart. John Stewart, a stand-up comedian. I'm sure he and I think him and Joe Rogan came up at the same time, so they're probably friends. But having said that, uh, there's a lot of people who came up with Dave Chappelle and don't like what Dave Chappelle's doing uh, and called him out. So you put him out with the Mumford and Sons guy with the rock and put Kevin James on one side. Then you put um, then you put uh, Crosby, Stills, Nash and Young, as well as some marginal 1960s stars on Spotify. And then people like Mary Trump, who's got an a, a unsuccessful podcast and they left Spotify. My, and this is the raging debate in this country right now. Should you be able to talk to people with credentials who might have a differing view than Anthony Fauci, than President Biden, than the CDC director, than the FDA? I like hearing other views. I like talking to people who saw UFOs or say they were abducted. Am I poisoning the mind of people just because perhaps they weren't abducted, that they thought they were? I'm asking questions. So I think that's pretty cool that Kevin James, The Rock, and John Stewart are on the same page there. I think a lot of people also fear Joe Rogan because they can't control Joe Rogan. My fear is people like Apple will say, I'm just going to take him out of the App Store. Goodbye, Spotify. That's my worry. Live from the Fox News radio studios in New York City, fresh off the set of Fox and Friends, it's America's receptive voice, Brian Kilmeade. Hi, everyone. Brian Kilmeade. Thanks so much for listening to all those nice people for saying such nice things. Uh, on deck, Peter Schweitzer. At the bottom of the hour, uh, a man that knows more about conflict than just about anybody else, Admiral James Stravitas, former Supreme Allied Commander of NATO, uh, who has just written a book about a possible war with China that people are using as a handbook, even though technically it was fiction. It's talk about a, a future conflict. Uh, and we have a lot to discuss, including, you know, Joe Biden, sooner or later, more and more people are going to pick up these investigations that Peter Schweitzer is doing for his new book, Red Handed, How American Elites Can Get Rich Helping China Win. Uh, and they talk about what the Biden family has done in particular. I noticed the New York Times now doing a FOIA request for Hunter Biden's exploits in Romania. So maybe there's some mainstream curiosity. So let's get to the big three. Now with the stories you need to know, it's Brian's Big Three. Number three. The Russians are likely to want to fabricate a pretext uh, for an invasion. We believe that Russia would produce a very graphic propaganda video, um, which would include corpses and images of destroyed locations, uh, as well as military equipment, uh, at the hands of U Ukraine or the West. John Kirby yesterday, uh, un- classifying information that talks about Russian actors might pretend that they died at the hands of the Ukrainians so they could have a big invasion. You think that'll happen? Not sure. 
Number two. I did a quick Google search, John, to see who had covered this Johns Hopkins study, and I came up with Daily Mail, New York Post, Fox News. I guess a lot of major news organizations didn't want to embrace the idea. Locking down, mask mandates and the like uh, may have had very little effect on the death rate. Ignore the endemic because you want to control Americans through the pandemic. My only conclusion as to why our government and left-wing outlets are ignoring diminishing Omicron and the studies that show that masks and shutdowns don't work is why Joe Rogan and his uncontrollable podcast are such a threat. Because we allowed to discuss things that they don't want. Number one. This spring, the Justice Department will issue a final rule to regulate these so-called ghost guns. Police departments report sharp increases and the number of ghost guns found at crime scenes. That's why today the department is launching an, an intensified national ghost gun enforcement initiative. Yeah, the, the, unbelievable. What a letdown. Missed opportunity. President Biden shows he recognizes crime as a major problem, but thinks guns are the issue. Not uh, DAs that don't want to prosecute, uh, not the defunding, dismantling, and reimagining, which is a lot of the mindset of his party that's been out there for the last two years. Blame the gun. It will not cure a thing. Kind of sad. Uh, we'll discuss that, but put that on the shelf for now. Peter Schweitzer, president of the Government Accountability Institute, and a number, uh, a number of number one New York Times bestsellers, including this one, Red Handed, How American Elites Get Rich, Helping China Win. Such an important book, Peter. A lot of people focusing on what the Bidens did or didn't do. Were you surprised the New York Times looked at what you're doing and now they have a freedom of information request that they're pushing for when it comes to Hunter Biden's exploits in Romania? Uh, yeah, Brian, it's great to be with you as always. Thanks for having me. Yeah, no, I think it's very interesting. And I think it indicates that some of the media may be starting to turn its attention to actually reporting uh, the Biden's commercial ties overseas because Hunter Biden ran a veritable United Nations of corruption. Uh, I focus on China in my book. Uh, New York Times is looking at Romania, where this Romanian oligarch who is convicted in Romania on corruption and bribery charges apparently hired Hunter Biden, who then hired Louis Free, the former FBI director, to try to run a PR campaign to get those charges removed. Uh, so, yes, I'm glad The Times is on it. The Times reporter working on that. Ken Vogel, I think, is a, is a good straight reporter. Uh, so hopefully we'll be hearing more about that uh, in the weeks and months ahead. What's Rudy Giuliani's role there? His name popped up. Yes, yes. Uh, you know, as you find in a lot of cases, uh, these corrupt overseas officials uh, operate on a bipartisan basis. Uh, and apparently Rudy Giuliani was also hired as a consultant uh, during the Trump years to try to get the Trump administration to pressure the Romanian government uh, to get these charges taken away. Uh, those efforts seem to have failed, as did Hunter Biden's efforts. Interesting. Uh, so, Peter, you're focusing on uh, China and what goes on over there. You know, this whole investigation, one of the biggest crimes, I think, that I can remember— that had almost every media outlet outside Fox and you uh, on board and the New York Post was when they took the New York Post story that talked about the laptop with Hunter Biden. And they said that this bad is is uh, fake news and we're going to disable your account until the election's over. And they did and apologized after nothing fake about it. Nothing's proven inaccurate. In fact, Hunter hasn't denied it. What has that done for your investigation and which helped launch this book? Uh, well, yes, you're exactly right on the history of it. It's really disgraceful how the media has had a complete lack of curiosity about this and covered it up. Uh, what I did in this book, Brian, was, uh, you know, we first revealed Hunter Biden's commercial ties in 2018 in my book, Secret Empires. What we did in this book was we took the Hunter Biden laptop, 
And we also took emails that we got from Bevan Cooney, who was one of Hunter Biden's former business partners. And we wanted to try to figure out who made those deals in China happen. Or as my kids would say, who made it rain for the Bidens? Because there's some $31 million that they were able to collect from Chinese businesses. So who opened those doors? And what we find, Brian, is that there were four businessmen that played a central role. And each and every one of those businessmen has direct clear ties to the highest levels of Chinese intelligence. And so what that means, Brian, is this is not a story just about corruption or self-dealing or cronyism anymore. We have to recognize the fact that this was an uh, intelligence effort by Beijing uh, to co-opt or to capture the Biden family. And we have to have a discussion in this country about whether the Biden family may be compromised by Chinese intelligence. And how would you know? From what we've seen so far, have you seen indications uh, of ineptness or a conspiratorial uh, trend? That's a great question, Brian. It's really hard to gauge that because part of the Chinese strategy, I talk about it in the book, is they're not looking for uh, people that they co-opt or that they have leverage over to walk in lockstep with them. Uh, the Chinese uh, term or phrase loosely translated to English is they want big help with a little bad mouth. So in other words, if Joe Biden uh, dings them on the Uyghurs or talks about human rights violations, they're fine with that. They recognize that Western elites have to maintain some political viability to be credible. Uh, but what they want is help on the really big stuff, the big help. And for them, that is they want unfettered access to Western capital markets, to investment, and they want unfettered access largely to U.S. technology. And if you look at that measure, uh, the Biden administration is giving Beijing exactly what they want in contrast to the policies that the Trump administration was carrying out, which was much more aggressive in trying to curtail their access to both capital and technology. A couple of things. Now, it's bigger than Hunter, but just to close it on Hunter for a second, uh, so there's an investigation going on into his transactions and what he was doing. I mean, where's the money? I mean, I know that if yeah. I don't, if I'm not handed, but if I don't have my receipts for restaurants that I'm looking to write off or anything, <laughs> I mean, where is, we're talking about millions of dollars. Who has it? Where is it? And since when is there a multi-year investigation and we don't hear anything about it? Yeah, no, that's a great point, Brian. There are at least two multi-year investigations into Hunter Biden. Uh, one is that grand jury uh, up in Delaware that people have discussed. That, that launched in 2018, uh, about four months after my book came out, and that grand jury is still in operation. So we're going on almost four years. The other thing that's going on, uh, just broke a couple of days ago, is the IRS subpoenaed records from Hunter Biden's account at J.P. Morgan uh, because of issues relating to transactions involving the Bank of China and accounts there, uh, obviously tax implications. So both of those investigations are going on. To answer your question about where the money is, this is where it's very interesting. You know, Hunter Biden, of course, is the, was the face or the guy that closed the deals in China. But we now know that some of the money flowed to other Biden family members. James Biden, that would be Joe Biden's brother, got at least $2 million of that money. But we also know, based on the laptop, 
that Hunter Biden was paying his father's bills. He was subsidizing his lifestyle uh, to the tune of at least tens of thousands of dollars. I think the number is much larger, but we absolutely know that he was paying bills for his father. So this is not just a Hunter Biden story. This is a Biden family story. And the question is, where is this money being held? Were taxes paid on it? What favors were given in return? Because let's face it, uh, the Chinese state, Chinese intelligence services, they're not running philanthropies. They're not running right. charities. They want something in return for that money. And there's no discernible legitimate business activity that I could find that Hunter Biden engaged in for this some $31 million that he took in. So as I go through your books, you know, what? if I, no, if I was if I was Barack Obama, I'd be ticked off. I'm asking you to be vice president. Yeah. You're running over your private deals. You're going over to Mexico. You're going over to China. You're traveling your son. You know he's got an addiction problem. You're making it worse by putting him in these high-stress situations. Meanwhile, you're traveling around because I named you vice president. So am I naive yeah. in thinking that President Obama might be sitting down at the table going, Michelle, what the hell was he doing? Yeah, no, I think you're exactly right. And uh, certainly we, we know that there are Obama administration alumni that are in the Biden administration. And you have to think part of that is to just sort of track that's, uh, what's going on. I mean, to show you how reckless the Bidens were in the midst of this, Brian, one of the things that happens, and this has been confirmed uh, by the U.S. Senate and by the Secret Service, that in the middle of 2014, as Hunter Biden is closing these deals with these businessmen who are linked to, in some cases, the vice minister of state security in China. These are the top guys in the spy agency. As he's closing those deals, Brian, he goes to the United States Secret Service and says, I don't want protection when yeah. I travel overseas. <laughs> That's a stunning, stunning development. Is that related to the drug addiction? Yeah, it probably is. I also think it's linked to these deals. He did not want U.S. officials to know who he was meeting with and money, what he might be doing with those people that he's meeting with and that he's closing deals with. So a couple of things, too. Do you have Republicans in here? You know, John Boehner is in here. You talk about Tim Hutchinson. You talk about Ed Royce taking certain money for certain companies in order to lobby for a certain organization or if it's in front of your committee. That's a huge problem. And we need some patriotic businessmen. I mean, how much money does J.P. Morgan need? Uh, what have they yeah. sacrificed in order to get over there? And Ray Dalio is an embarrassment. I, you know, I'm not smart enough to know how brilliant he is, but they say he's the most brilliant investor we have. So he's over there praising China every chance he gets. He's fascinated with that country, and he's very hooked in with that country. Yeah, he is. Uh, I, I've got a, a whole section in the book on Ray Dalio. He, of course, runs Bridgewater Associates, which is the biggest hedge fund in the world. And one of the things I cite in the book is that Ray Dalio, this brilliant investor, uh, in, in a book he wrote in 2017 called Principles, he praises uh, the number two leader in China, a guy named Wang Qishan. He, he says, this is a guy that has helped me tap into the secrets of the universe. He goes on in this sort of quasi-religious way about what a genius this guy is. And then he says that Wang Qishan has been a remarkable force for good for decades. So, Brian, I decided to spend, you know, half an hour investigating who is this guy, Wang Qishan, that Ray Dalio thinks is so brilliant. And it turns out he is President Xi's enforcer. This <laughs> is the guy that throws people in jail, who tortures them. He's in charge of party discipline. The Economist magazine calls him the most feared man in China. 
And yet you've got Ray Dalio praising him as sort of quasi, you know, Gandhi-like figure. Um, it's important to point out after he made those statements and said other nice things about China, his firm, Bridgewater Associates, was granted the first contract of any Western investment firm to offer hedge fund services to ordinarily Chinese. So, you know, his, his brilliance, which I'm sure he has investor brilliance, uh, I think is only matched by the gall that he has to say these things about the Chinese leadership so he can get access to the Chinese market for his company. And, you know, and I'm, it's not in your book because it's new. She's 18, Eileen Gu, who was born in America, trained in America. We trained her. She was able to get a whole bunch of endorsements. At 15, she's a world champion for the U.S. and decides, I think I'm going to go compete, even though I live out on the West Coast, for China in the Olympics because her mom was yeah. born there. And I'm wondering, what kind of deal did she cut? Because if you are a young, beautiful athlete in the Winter Games, we watch these athletes like Mary Lou Retton be famous for the next 50 years. Why would you be better off going in China? Should we expect things like this? Yeah, I think we should. Um, I have a section in the book on LeBron James. Uh, and, of course, people are familiar with uh, the whole situation with the general uh, manager of the Houston Rockets who talked, tweeted about Hong Kong and LeBron James and the NBA shut him down. As I point out in the book, LeBron James uh, has deep ties to China that go beyond the Nike deal. His media company has deals with the Chinese state-owned media company for the distribution of products. He has his own shoe line that is released to the Chinese elite uh, before it is released anywhere else. Uh, and as I point out, Brian, he's been appeasing China for a long time. If you remember back in 2007, 2008, we had the crisis in Darfur, where uh, two to 300,000 black Christians in Sudan were massacred by the regime. And as I point out in the book, there was a petition drive launched in the NBA to condemn the Chinese government, which was the sponsor of this regime that was killing hundreds of thousands of people in South Sudan. Uh, on the Cleveland Cavaliers, LeBron James was the only player who refused to sign the petition to condemn Amazing. China. The guy, the so, guy is you, spineless. When he, yeah, only if it comes to ridiculing America, he loves doing that. Uh, Peter, I got to end it yeah. there, but there's no reason. There's no reason why your book's not going to be a, a, a number one bestseller for for months. It's, it really breaks ground on every page. Thanks so much, Peter. Appreciate you joining us. Always oh, a pleasure. Thanks, Brian. You got it. And the name of the book: Red Handed: How American Elites Get Rich, Helping China Win. Back in a moment. Expanding your knowledge base. It's the Brian Kilmeade Show. If you're interested in it, Brian's talking about it. You're with Brian Kilmeade. Biden is basically trying to gut the Second Amendment. Uh, you know, in addition to everything he talked about today, his ATF has registered nearly one billion gun owners records. You talked about that earlier this week. I mean, that's a list that can always be a prelude to gun confiscation. His ATF has proposed a ban on 40 million pistols. And by the way, those one, million, one billion records can show the administration who's not complying with that ban. Truly, there's a long list of things the Biden administration is doing to gun owners, but he needs them as his scapegoat because Democrat cities are setting homicide records, and that's embarrassing to the left. And he doesn't talk about the criminals themselves. He doesn't talk about the DAs that don't want to incarcerate, prosecute the criminals themselves. Did I like the fact they identified crime? He had to. 22 cities see astronomical growth in crime. 
Next, we're going to talk about his other big challenge, two of them, but one of which is seeing President Xi and President Putin together. Those, that's the new alliance, the new axis of evil. But evil, these are strong, strong nations, strong militarily for Russia, strong economically and militarily for China, who, if Russians get their way and start absorbing country after country, they'll have the natural resources to be a true economic and military superpower again. So those are the challenges he faces along with what's happening in the Ukraine. When we come back, Admiral James Trevitas will talk about that, and we're going to be talking about crime. And tell, tell me your reality. one 408 7669 Also, some good news. I've uh, got a show on at 8 o'clock. One Nation. I want you all to tune in. We're putting it together now, and it looks like it's going to be a, a great show. And then you can go out dancing right after, unless, of course, you're snowed in. Radio that makes you think. This is the Brian Kilmeade Show. Russia doesn't much like uh, what's going on in Ukraine, not simply because of NATO and the possibilities there. They don't like the example that Ukraine sets. They don't, they don't like the kind. They don't want anyone in Russia getting excited about Ukrainian democracy. China looks at Taiwan. Again, they don't much like the example that Taiwan sets. Uh, both of them want to have freedom to use force to create spheres of influence in their parts of the world. So there's some real parallelism there. And what they agree on is they don't much like anything the United States is about. And they are increasingly banding together uh, so they have, they have found common cause. But this is a real sign that these two countries have mm-hmm. essentially uh, forged, I wouldn't call it an alliance, but common cause against the United States. They have found lots that they uh, they agree on and lots that since they, they, they jointly are against. Richard Haas on the Council of Foreign Relations uh, talking about what he saw today, and that is Vladimir Putin and President Xi. Uh, President Xi welcomed the first leader and since the pandemic started. And they talked about their alliance and how they were going to be unified against NATO and against the U.S. Joining us now Admiral James Travitas, very few people who are better to talk to at this moment, uh, the 16th Supreme Allied Commander at NATO, a member of the Carlisle Group, and author of uh, several bestsellers, including The Sailor's Bookshelf, 50 Books to Know the Sea. Admiral, what were your thoughts that welcome? What were your thoughts seeing these two uh, powers together today? Brian, I've been talking about this for several years. I think this is the most a dangerous geopolitical alignment for the United States is Putin and Xi bringing Russia and China closer and closer together. Look, it's a strategic marriage made in heaven or hell, depending on your viewpoint. But here you've got Russia, massive land area, huge natural resources, oil, gas, arable land, timber, freshwater, everything, small population. On the other hand, You have China, huge population, almost no natural resources. And what do they share in common? Authoritarianism and a deep antipathy to the United States and NATO. Look, they are going to be working together for the foreseeable future, probably for decades, and it's going to be a real challenge for the West. And, if, and if, you know, the thing is, you, you look at China, Russia and experts like you will say, well, don't worry about Russia. They're a gas and oil station, and they're not very good farmers, and they're not good at even harvesting their own timber. But if they take the Ukraine, things change. If they start absorbing some of the Baltics, those change. If they start dominating places like Belarus, they start taking those natural resources. They become more and more dangerous and formidable. That's part of the reason why Ukraine matters, correct? That is absolutely right. And let's also recognize that if Putin invades and when we then slap huge sanctions on him, what's he going to do? He's going to pick up the phone and call his BFF, best friend forever, in Beijing, 
uh, President Xi and start moving oil and gas, moving commercial relations even more deeply. So there's a huge economic component to this, Brian, in addition to the geopolitical one you just mentioned. So there's a story yesterday that was exposed, I guess, strategically, and I assume it's, I assume it's true, by John Kirby. Listen to this about what Russia might be up to with the Ukraine. Cut 32. We do have information uh, that it is that, that, that the Russians are likely to want to fabricate a pretext uh, for an invasion, um, which, again, is right out of their playbook. We believe that Russia would produce a very graphic propaganda video, um, which would include corpses um, and actors that would be depicting mourners uh, and images of destroyed locations, uh, as well as military equipment, uh, at the hands of U Ukraine or the West, even to the point where some of this equipment would be to made, made to look like it was Western-supplied Ukrainian, uh, you know, to Ukraine equipment. So have you ever heard of something like this? And what about this strategy, if it is, in fact, true and we're not being played, and if it's played to art and helps America stay safe, I understand the big picture. What do you think about this operation and exposing it? It is absolutely part of the Kremlin playbook. They've done it on somewhat smaller scale in a couple of other situations in Chechnya and in the invasion of Georgia in 2008. Um, they are unafraid to manufacture something like this. And I think it would be very effective given the way the social networks dominate the world. As the saying goes, Brian, a lie travels around the earth before the truth can get its boots on. This is a pretty good example of how they would play this. And by the way, it's part of a larger checklist that includes cyber attack, massing forces, maritime encirclement that's going on in the Black Sea. Put all that in place, check. Then you get ready with this kind of so-called false flag operation. You have a pretext. Boom, you pulled the trigger. So, yes, this is very much part of the Russian playbook. Um, we are right to expose it because by doing so, we can at least devalue it when it does go global if it occurs. We can say, hey, we told you this. And that would be the moment, by the way, when we would need to put some real evidence on the table. And I think we have that evidence and could do so. Romania asked for troops. Poland's getting some troops. We're putting a few thousand in there. You used to try to run NATO and keep everybody together. Are you? How would you characterize the togetherness factor in NATO right now? I think it's uh, it's together right now. And and let's remember there are 30 countries here. Think about a a bicycle with 30 different people all pedaling, and they're pedaling at different speeds. But at the moment, they're all going in the same direction. U.S., U.K. leadership, France kind of in the middle, Germany pedaling a little more slowly given their energy relationships and business relationships. But at the moment, and I talked to the secretary general of NATO this morning, at the moment, they are pedaling in the same direction. Brian, here's the problem. When the invasion occurs, if it's massive, believe me, they'll all pedal in the same direction. But if it's limited, if they just take a bite out of one portion of southeast Ukraine, that's when I think you're going to see the rubber meet the road. And frankly, the tires might uh, start squeaking a bit at that point, unfortunately. So what would you be doing that, would, that they're not doing in the administration? What frustrates you? You talk to people and they're just not listening. I think the only thing that really we need to up our game is flowing weapons into Ukraine. Um, it, you see these 
videos of Ukrainian bankers and lawyers and, and school teachers signing up to fight. But you also see videos of them practicing with wooden rifles. Um, we have got to get a broad spectrum of weapons in there rapidly. Here's a bit of good news in my view. One thing that President Xi almost certainly told President Putin over the last 24 hours is, um, hey, do not invade during the Olympics. So that gives us, you know, a couple of weeks here, maybe a little more, to flow more weapons in there, everything from the high-end stingers and javelins down to the stuff you need for hand-to-hand combat. I don't know, I hear you, but I guess in the call last week, one of the things that Zelensky said that got out from the Ukrainian side was, you got all the weapons we're going to give you. Is that is that how you understand it, too? I mean, are they using this opportunity to flow more weapons in? I don't have visibility into the minute-to-minute TikTok of what's flowing in, but you asked what would I do differently from what I see now. I would push more weapons in more rapidly and more publicly to send a signal to Vladimir Putin. So here's uh, Marco Rubio. After he gets the briefing yesterday, he says, quote, This is the most significant threat to Europe since 1945. It is just that simple. Uh, There's a big push, and it might be bipartisan on some level, to do— uh, to do a sanction situation, uh, limited sanctions before an invasion about the threat they've already done. What could you tell us about that, and where do you stand on that, sanctioning before an invasion, an invasion that could still not happen? Uh, first and foremost, you're right. There's broad bipartisan consensus about the level of the threat here. That's good news. Point two, it is a a situation where reasonable people can have different tactical approaches. In my case, I would say, give them a little taste, put a little bit of that sanctions magic out there, show them what it's going to look like so that they are aware what will be coming, show them the front edge of it. And then you've got the the visibility on the big package, the big hammer behind. It's kind of like tap a little bit at the glass, let them know what's coming had the big hammer ready to go. There are others. I don't know where Senator Rubio is. I think he's been very strong on this crisis, by the way. Um, There are those who say, nope, give him the the full shot right now. Personally, I think that's premature tactically. Um, Let's keep Vladimir Putin calculating, but perhaps a little taste of what might be coming is warranted at this point. Admiral, um, and it seems as though we're getting more and more classified briefings or uh, leaked documents not denied about what was really going on in Afghanistan before the evacuation, and it's so mind-boggling how out of touch we were. Uh, What stands out to you from the Axios reporting from the documents that came out October 14th They're in the Situation Room, and they're just stunned. There's no plan in place. They're thinking about getting a list in place for evacuees, potential evacuee candidates, while Kabul is falling. I mean, when you look at this, from everything that you've seen and studied, from war colleges that you, classes that you teach and the ones you take, can you get your head around all the mistakes we have made? I'll give you two that really stand out. One is our inability to truly understand Uh, the Taliban. We never were able to understand the depth of their resistance, their, frankly, their competence and their resilience. So point one, we never got deep enough. And then to your point, tactically, we were obviously way late to need 
on being ready to take our allies, partners, and friends out of that place. And that's something that I think um, is going to be investigated thoroughly, and I think there ought to be real accountability for failures in that regard in particular. Do you think a lot of the problems we're having in Ukraine and Taiwan are because of the way we left Afghanistan, the embarrassing, inept way in which we did that after 20 years? I'll put it this way, Brian. You know, nations are like people, and they make mistakes. And so you can go back, frankly, to 1975 in Saigon and our mistakes there. What happened in Afghanistan looks like a repetition of that. You know what? But in the middle, we did an awful lot of very competent kinds of interventions, including into the Balkans, largely done by Democrat administrations, and into the Persian Gulf the first time done by a Republican administration. So our record is uneven. Afghanistan, what occurred there most recently, unfortunately, I think is top of mind, and it hurts us in both the Ukraine situation as well as potential issues around Taiwan. You knew Vladimir Putin. Does he smell weakness? Is that why this is happening? Because there's nothing Ukraine did in particular to warrant this type of uh, weapons buildup. Yeah, this is the question of why now? Why is this happening now? And I think Afghanistan is a part of it. I think that Zelensky, the president of Ukraine, who's been erratic, I believe Putin felt initially he could control him, work with him more. I think COVID creates a real distraction globally. And lastly, you know, Vladimir Putin's not getting any younger. He's about to turn 70. He's thinking about his legacy And the mentality from Putin, it's that old Russian proverb, Brian, when you probe with a bayonet and you encounter mush, keep going. When you hit steel, withdraw. We've got to show Vladimir Putin some steel. Let's hope he's listening. Steel that we give, but we're not going to use. We're going to give the Ukrainians steel. You're not saying that we should have armaments in Ukraine? or Correct. I am saying we should not put our troops into Ukraine to fight this battle, but we should do all that we can to prepare the Ukrainians to do so. They are tough. I've been with them many times. I've commanded their troops in Afghanistan. They will fight, and we need to give them the means to do so. Uh, Lastly, if the legacy of NATO, if we do all we're doing from the EU to NATO to the U.S. individually, and we've done this really intense negotiations for the last two months, and they still invade, knowing the threat of sanctions and everything short of actually fighting them directly because they're not technically in NATO. Are you worried about the next day? Because if they were able to pull this off and survive like they did the Donbass region and Crimea, this is going to make NATO look as though we are really toothless and America like there's really nothing to fear. I wouldn't go that far, Brian, because if you really look at the correlation of forces here, Putin is content to attack a nation like Ukraine, which has a minuscule defense budget, a small army, doesn't have the economic throw weight. On the other hand, it's a very big difference attacking Estonia uh, or Romania or a NATO country, and I'll tell you why. The NATO defense budget collectively, U.S. plus Europeans, is over a trillion dollars. Russia's is about 60 billion. Russia has an army of perhaps 400,000. NATO has 3 million people under arms. I think there's a big difference between 
the calculus for Vladimir Putin crossing the NATO border in anger. I don't see it. This is why the alliance makes sense. But we've got to do all we can. Your point, it's a good one. Our credibility in how we treat partners, not formal allies, but partners, matters. That's why it's important that we give the Ukrainians the means to fight. Admiral James Servetus, thanks so much. Pick up his book, Bookshelf. It's called 50 Books to Know the Sea. Appreciate it, Admiral. Thanks, Brian. Talk you to got you. it. Bye. 1-866-408-7669. I'm going to finish up with some calls, everything from crime uh, to war uh, to Joe Rogan. This is The Brian Kilmeade Show. This weekend, check out Brian's new show on Fox News Channel. His new Saturday show lets him ruin your weekends, too. Take it easy, Gutfeld. That really hurts. One Nation with Brian Kilmeade. Saturdays at 8 p.m. Eastern on Fox News Channel. More of Brian coming up. Breaking news, unique opinions. Hear it all on The Brian Kilmeade Show. So in the spirit of cross-network cooperation, here's a suggestion. Why not replace Jeff Zucker with Jeff Tubin? They're both called Jeff. Not a small thing. Sure, Jeff. Got it, Jeff. Gesundheit, Jeff. Here's your large pizza, Jeff. Deep dish. Everyone at CNN is used to saying those words every day. So trading one Jeff for another would ease the transition. You wouldn't want a Penelope in this job. Too many syllables. Jeff Tubin, by the way, knows the landscape at CNN. He's been there for decades. He knows how CNN works. In fact, he's trying to illustrate that on his now famous Zoom call. From the first day, Jeff Tubin would have the network in the palm of his hand. A lot of Jeff Zucker rubbed off on him over the years. The job won't be easy, obviously. Running a left-wing TV network isn't like exposing yourself online. It's a lot more embarrassing than that. It's also a ton of work. You've got to get up early every morning. You can't just lie in bed whacking the snooze bar. You've got to make it to the office and crank it out. But Jeff Tubin's up to it. Tubin reportedly has a keen business mind, so the sales team at CNN would welcome him there. You can imagine the innovative new sponsorships, the Lubriderm News Hour, weather updates brought to you by Kleenex, a content sharing deal between headline news and OnlyFans. The possibilities are endless. So don't dismiss Jeff Tubin, ladies and gentlemen, as the new president of CNN. The HR department at CNN has already endorsed him. Fewer lawsuits. Jeff Tubin's not going to harass anyone, only himself. That is very interesting. That is Tucker Carlson having some fun at Jeff Zucker's expense and Jeffrey Tubin's expense. It was so good. You know his writers love their job and love to write when they're like, let's just do this. So, you know, a couple of things. You know, the ratings have been through the roof for the network. I was talking to, I did Greg Gutfeld last night. And, you know, you think to yourself, wow, people don't really care about Jeff Zucker. No one really knows who he is. It's not like it. Or Jeffrey Tubin. He's just a contributor. But it turns out, if you look at the ratings, people are really into this. Especially, this is a big win for Donald Trump. He said for the longest time, he's a sleazebag, he's a horrible person, he wrecked his whole, he wrecked CNN, and I got him the job, I helped him get the job. And then he goes up in flames. I think the, I think the Fox fans are going, they are a bigger mess than anyone imagined. Well, that is true. But I think people also like to laugh, so that's all, when you do funny spoofs like that, people enjoy it. I think so. Brian Kilmeade Show. From the Fox News Radio studios in New York City, giving you opinions and facts with a positive approach. It's Brian Kilmeade. Thanks so much for being here, everybody. It's the Brian Kilmeade Show, 1-866-408-7669. It's, uh, we're coming to you from crime-ridden New York City. 
where we got to get on top of this. This mayor's got to back up his words with actions. And I'm really let down that the president of the United States, but not surprised, only talked about guns, did not talk about assailants and criminals and the need to rein in this bad behavior and make consequences for these actions. Uh, this hour, we're going to be joined by Shannon Bream, a law and order anchor, and Howard Safer, New York City police commissioner from 96 to 2000. And he was police, he was a fire commissioner as well. Um, I'm just looking at some of these developments that have happened already today, time difference. Uh, President Xi and Vladimir Putin met uh, shoulder to shoulder. First time a leader has met with President Xi since the pandemic uh, poisoned the world that they started. And then uh, it did, I just was watching some of this footage. I got to get more on this. And that is uh, they told they said they don't want to hear any negative reporting from here. They don't want to hear any protests. And a Dutch reporter was just pulled off the air. So I got to get to the details on that. But, man, we're not even in official. The opening ceremony's just concluded and we're having problems already. And then I saw Senator Scott just having a press conference saying we've done nothing to protect our athletes. They're really susceptible and out in a limb. Or is this going to be a typical you're okay in, Olympic, you're in the Olympic City and you'll be all right? All right, so we have a lot to discuss. Big three. Now with the stories you need to know, it's Brian's Big Three. Number three. The Russians are likely to want to fabricate a pretext uh, for an invasion. We believe that Russia would produce a very graphic propaganda video. Uh, which would include corpses and images of destroyed locations uh, as well as military equipment uh, at the hands of U Ukraine or the West. Attention, attention. Russian actors might just be cast in a fake Ukrainian attack uh, movie that's caused the biggest war in Europe in 80 years. Uh, they told us that ahead of time. All this stuff is new to me. I'm going to take it as it is, and that is uh, if we see some blood, let's make sure it's real blood. Number two. I did a quick Google search, John, to see who had covered this Johns Hopkins study, and I came up with Daily Mail, New York Post, Fox News. I guess a lot of major news organizations didn't want to embrace the idea. Locking down, mask mandates and the like uh, may have had very little effect on the death rate. That is Howie Kurtz talking about ignoring the endemic because you want to be in and restricted us in the pandemic and why they need to rein in things like Substack and Joe Rogan because they are not going along with the plan. Number one. This spring, the Justice Department will issue a final rule to regulate these so-called ghost guns. Police departments report sharp increases in the number of ghost guns found at crime scenes. That's why today the department is launching an, an intensified national ghost gun enforcement initiative. Whatever. Uh, have you ever thought about pre-reading any copy, Mr. President? President Biden shows his re he recognizes crime as a major problem. But he wants to blame the guns, not the DAs, not the criminals, the guns. That's an issue, isn't it? Not calling out fellow Democrats who want to dismantle, defund, and reimagine police. How many? Dozens. With me right now is Shannon Bream. She has a great imagination, but she does not want to reimagine police. Am I correct, Shannon? You are correct. Right. I imagine police being allowed to do their job. Like, I don't know, uh, every year up until 2005, uh, we have not really had it. Uh, Mayor de Blasio was running on Michael Bloomberg's fumes and the, the law and order. And then when things broke loose in the pandemic and the, um, uh, the George Floyd riots, we really saw where he stood. And we have not been able to bounce back since. Do you think the whole country was watching the president and wondering where he stood yesterday? And do you think they felt better about what they heard? 
Well, it depends on who you are and if you what your perspective is. Um, if you think that what's working now, uh, we should do and keep moving forward. And again, focus on the guns rather than the people who are using the guns. Um, then you probably liked it. But if you're worried uh, about and watching, you know, the funerals for law enforcement officers around the country and hearing the grieving loved ones talk about how the fallen officer was worried about the policies and afraid about how it gave them the ability uh, to do or not do their jobs, um, you wanted to hear a different message than what you got yesterday. No question. And we didn't get it. I was just saying that for the I just people always talk about politicians they are going to do what's best for them. All right. If I was doing what's best for Joe Biden and I wanted to save any type of majority in either body, I would call, I'd go out of my way to say well meaning, but um, ill, uh, you know, well meaning Democratic lawmakers over the last two years that have called for defunding, dismantling, and reimagining police have been way off base. And it's helped fuel this sense of lawlessness that we see from smashing grabs to carjackings to flat out assassination of our police, Pete. And if you go do that, you would blur the line for Republicans who are firmly in place when it comes to law and order. And not only would you help us stay safe, like me and you in major cities and people listening to us right now across the country, but it would actually benefit him politically. What's holding him back? Well, you got to wonder, is it Iran Klain? Uh, in the White House who, you know, there's always um, this chatter around Washington that he has pulled the president too far left for his own good and for the good of his administration. Um, you got to wonder. I mean, somebody's advising him that some of these tax that they're on that could be reversed and would probably be helpful, as you said, to the White House to change course to admit this path on, you know, restrictions or whatever didn't work or mandates, um, this path on soft on crime didn't work. Um, we heard you. We get it. And let's turn things around together. It would be a helpful message, but it seems like what the the strategy they're going with instead is we're staying the course, we're sticking with what we've said, we're not going to look like we're flinching or made a wrong decision, right. and we're just going to continue down this path. And like you said, you wish even out of their just own their self interest uh, and selfishness with trying to you know appeal to the midterms and stuff that they even if they think the policy is great as it is, when you see the results and how it's killing you in the Thank polls. You. Even the self-interest maybe could turn you around, but no. So, so I'll just read a little bit of the editorial today in the lead. It's on the cover of the New York Post. Manhattan DA Alvin Bragg won't even jail you for using a gun in a robbery unless you actually fire it. Not a word from Biden on the issues where Adams and the New Yorkers in general need his help. By the way, San Francisco, Chicago, Philadelphia, uh, as well as Los Angeles, this is for you too. Nothing on this lunatic no-bail law, which doesn't let judges jail even clearly dangerous perps or chronic repeat offenders. Not a word about him from there. Nothing on the gang-empowering raise-the-age law. If Biden really wanted to boost Adams' agenda and turn around his own failing political fortunes, he could have called out the extremists in his own party who block even the most minor reforms. The conceit is that the pandemic caused the U.S. urban crime wave, but at most it just accelerated trends already underway, enabling an ill-written reforms and a wave of anti-prosecuting prosecutors winning office. He didn't do anything. He blamed ghost guns, made some bad jokes, and now he's back in Washington. Does, does anyone there think about what's going on big picture? 
Well, listen, we had Lieutenant Randy Sutton retired, um, a longtime distinguished police officer who now works with officers who are, you know, struggling with morale and having trouble and trying to move through doing their jobs in this new environment. And, um, you know, he said he never had an officer that he knew who arrested someone and it was a ghost gun situation. Yeah, in fact, you uh, have – this is how much respect I have for your show. We pulled that cut. cut oh, in. there you go. What I heard today was um, shameful. The, the reality is that ghost guns, I don't even know one police officer who has ever actually investigated a, a, a murder involving a ghost gun. This is a diversion. That's all this is. This is just about not holding criminals accountable for their crimes. That's what this is all about. You won't ever hear the president, you won't ever hear uh, Governor Hochul uh, talk about the criminal, they'll only talk about the gun, an inanimate object. They'll never talk about the person who is using the weapon. And, and you can put a, a million gun laws on the books if the judges and the prosecutors, like Alvin Bragg, who is just a George Soros, a Trojan horse district attorney, if they don't prosecute, it means nothing. And they have not addressed that one little bit. So take opinion out of it. That's a law enforcement guy that wants to see criminals crack down on, and we, we're just falling short everywhere. Well, I think there's always this knee-jerk reaction. The easiest thing to do is to say we need more gun control. But he makes the point that if you're paying attention, people know there are plenty of laws on the books. And Americans agree about a lot of things that we should do to keep people safe. But if the laws that we currently have are not even being enforced, and we know the bad guys out there are using guns that are stolen, that are illegally bought on the street, it's not law-abiding citizens who need more laws. I mean, they're, they're you know registering their guns. They're getting licenses to carry or whatever they need in their jurisdiction. Um, so, you know, yesterday there was a tweet from Jen Psaki over at the White House talking about how there were uh, common sense gun measures that were stalled, that they couldn't get passed, that would help. But again, if there's not enforcement of what's already on the books, it makes it hard to support your argument that we need more laws that may not be enforced. Yeah, uh, a couple of things. This Joe Rogan story uh, is not going away. It seems like people are picking sides on a daily basis. And the reason why I think everyone should care is because if you can crack down on somebody who's, who got popular just because of the content of his program. Uh, Spotify says, this guy's a runaway hit. I'm going to pay him $100 million for the next five years. He moves to Austin and continues to interview people face-to-face for up to three, sometimes five hours, mm-hmm. at which time he interviews people like Dr. Robert Malone, who uh, invented, have six patents when it comes to the mRNA uh, technology, understands it and feels as though we have the wrong policy. He questions them, and now that's a problem. The administration says, okay, good job, Spotify, on the disclaimer on controversial guests, but I want more. They were upset about Substack. They wanted more. 67%, according to a Pew Research poll, uh, liberal Democrats want the government to be able to crack down on what they claim is misinformation. Uh, And people like Crosby, Stills, Nash & Young, now all four of them, and some other artists are bowing out of Spotify. Do you worry where this is going, Shannon? Even though he's popular, but I worry about him taking they take Spotify out of the app store. Sponsors stop running for start running from Joe Rogan. And next thing you know, he's neutralized. Yeah, we should all be worried. I don't care if you're super far left, super far right. If speech in this country is being silenced, like dissent will not be tolerated, um, then everybody should be worried because it will come for you at some point. 
You may not like Joe Rogan. You may not like that he's had people across the spectrum. You know, we talk about Dr. Sanjay Gupta and others who don't agree with McCullough or Malone. Like, he tries to have a different people on and just – he's asking questions. I think he's general, genuinely seeking information. And I think people are so hungry and thirsty for that that they'll listen to all different kinds of interviews, whether they agree with the person he's talking to or not. But if you don't like Joe Rogan, one day it might be about you and what you think may be unpopular – this country was built on the freedom of speech, um, you know, the freedom to petition our government, all kinds of things that are so unique and different from the rest of the world. Right. If you want to be like the rest of the world and go where um, dissent is not tolerated, you're welcome to go. But I think um, I would st- you know, speak out on behalf of people who I completely disagree with because freedom of speech is that important that all of us should care. If, as long as it's not speech advocating harming or, or killing yeah. someone or those kinds of things, then we should be able to have conversations that are uncomfortable comfortable or unpleasant to us. So Mumford and Sums, this guy, Winston Marshall, I guess he's the banjo player, Mm -hmm. left the organization, uh, left the organization, left the group, and he said this. He said, you can still stream his songs on Apple. Ignore their force. uh, You can stream, mean about Neil Young. You can still stream his songs on Apple. Ignore their force, Wigger Labor. On Amazon, you can still get uh, Neil Young Mm -hmm. stuff, but don't read about the company's infamous working conditions. Keep on rocking in the free world. That's mocking a song that he wrote, Neil. Spotify is a private company. They're under no obligation to platform anybody. So while this campaign doesn't breach Rogan's First Amendment rights, it is clear stand against the cultural norm of free speech. On his side also, Jon Stewart, obviously to the left of center, cut 24. I don't know if you remember, there was a guy who went on his podcast named Josh Zeps, who, who had, they were talking about, I think Joe said, myocarditis. Kids shouldn't get the vaccine because it causes a, a higher risk of myocarditis. And Josh said, well, actually, getting COVID is a higher risk of myocarditis for kids, so they should get vaccinated. He said, no, it's not. He said, no, I think it is. He goes, mm, no, I'm pretty sure it's, it's the other way. And they looked it up. And when they looked it up, it came out that it's a much greater risk if you get COVID and you're, you know, eight to 12 or six to 15 or whatever the age range was, it's a much greater risk of myocarditis catching COVID than it is getting the vaccine. And if you are an ideologue or if you are a dishonest person, that is the moment. Like Tucker Carlson in that situation never would have looked it up and would have given that look he gives like somebody's giving him a confusion enema. Like they're just, <laughs> like, like they're just firing confusion up. And Joe just went like, oh, I didn't know. Oh, okay. I didn't get that. And and that to me says, oh, that's a person that you can engage with. It's an example. I didn't know that was a Tucker Carlson way. That's not the cut I thought we had, but that's interesting. I mean, it's still interesting, but he does look up things in real time because he has three hours. Right. And he'll he'll have four people do that. We have four minutes. Right, and we can't just stop in the middle of the interview and look stuff up. Yeah. But we'd love to, and you and I will, to the end, defend our buddy Tucker Carlson. Um, but, you know, it, it, it is a unique format that Joe Rogan can do this. Um, I love it, I, and I think because it is so different and so transparent and he admits he doesn't know stuff, I think people are drawn to that because they are desperately looking for authenticity. They're also looking for sources of information that don't have a preset agenda. I think people think, great, let me learn along with him. I don't know everything about mRNA. Let's listen to this conversation, and it may challenge some of what I think I know. But these guys are experts, and he's just going to sit there and probe and ask the questions we would, too. If we're sitting in our doctor's office and we're like, well, how does this work, and how do you know your
you're right. Right. Um, I think people are desperate for that. And Substack is another example. So if I have a differing opinion and New York Times doesn't want me there anymore like Barry Weiss, she's like, okay, I'll publish over here. And if you click on it, I get some money. And if you don't like it, don't click on it. And now people have a problem with that. I have a huge problem with this. This is the pandemic that never stops. Now, when people bring up things to end it, they want to silence you. They're never going to silence Shannon Bream. Uh, Shannon, the name of your new book is? The Mothers and Daughters of the Bible Speak. And we can download it now? Yeah, well, it's not out just yet, but foxnewsbooks.com or Amazon or anywhere else, you can pre-order it, and uh, it's out March 29th. Shannon Bream, watch it tonight. Thanks so much. Bye. Back in a moment. Educating, entertaining, enlightening. You're with Brian Kilmeade. The fastest three hours in radio. You're with Brian Kilmeade. Look, I encourage everybody to, to be safe and take care of your family. I do. But there's still some people that don't want to take it. And you shouldn't have to be forced to take something that you don't want. No, it's not forced. It is forced because if the man don't take it, the man will get fired. Thank you, Shaquille O'Neal, again, speaking wisdom, and, and nurses and doctors and PhDs. Some don't feel comfortable taking it. Some have conditions or have religious contentions. Uh, let's go to Barry out in Los Angeles. Hey, Barry. Hey, Brian. Um, no matter what your opinion is on uh, whether or not we should have boycotted the Olympics, the fact that NBC is broadcasting the opening ceremonies is just atrocious. I mean— you know that it's choreographed by the the Communist Party of China. Why, why would we, why would we be broadcasting that? It's it's insane. Well, the good news is it was six in the morning, right? So well, no, they're doing it tonight. They're doing it tonight prime time too. Well, you yeah. know the thing is, I, I I know what you're saying, but they pay all this money. Nobody's bidding on these games. Beijing gets it again, and they broadcast it. One thing is, I I encourage you to look at what Mike Tarico just did. He called them out. He didn't call them out of the week. He said State Department officials say they're torturing Uyghurs. The State Department officials say or the government re- reveals that Hong Kong freedom of speech has been crushed and Taiwan's been threatened. They do talk about all those things, uh, but they do it using sources. It doesn't say NBC is abhorred by their, their human rights record, but they say other reports reveal. But they're in a tough spot. They pay a zillion dollars for it. They don't know if France is going to get it or if China is going to get it. I blame the IOC. But uh, and now I, I, I hope they fall flat on their face, but I'm pulling for all our athletes. It's tough. You know, these winter sports athletes, they get no glory. This is their moment. The talk show that's getting you talking. You're with Brian Kilmeade. The bail law and, and also to raise the age, both of them, we need to tweak those laws in certain areas. Uh, it's unimaginable that right now judges cannot uh, look at a dangerous person that can, that can actually do imminent danger in a city and not say this person should not be released. That is the aspect of the bail law that we're looking at and asking lawmakers to revisit. We believed in the criminal justice reform. We must be clear on that. But when you do an analysis of reform, you must also have the balance of public safety. And right now, the way it stands with raise the age and 
possession of a gun and the bail law where judges cannot use dangerousness as an, an assessment. 49 states are doing that. New York should be one of them as well. Well, here's the thing. Why do you bring that up yesterday? That was uh, Eric Adams on MSNBC, but not with the president there. The president only was talking about guns yesterday. Uh, former police commissioner, New York uh, NYPD police commissioner, uh, Howard Safer joins us now. Uh, Commissioner, welcome back. I, I like what he said there. I wish he would have said it to the president. Yeah, you know, he's saying all the right things. The problem is he doesn't do it. Albany does, and the federal government does, and it doesn't look like they're moving anywhere in that direction. And the thing is, if you pressure from the presidential level, if you do the the, the, cap, the political capital he has right now, that might be able to jar people to the core, being that crime is affecting more people than I can remember in my adult life. Right, but we have a president who sided with the rioters after the George Floyd incident. We have a president who said funding should be used to reform police. He's appointed a attorney general who said his primary mission is to hold police accountable. That's all the wrong message, and that's why criminals are running wild. How bad is it? It's the worst that I've seen since the 80s, and it's going back towards the bad old days. Uh, I'm hopeful that Eric Adams will be able to get some things done. But then again, he's one-third of the criminal justice system. He has to send his arrests to a district attorney in Manhattan who says he's only going to prosecute selective crimes. So right now you have a situation where almost everything except murders has gone up since he took over. But people being thrown in trains, the carjacking, uh, the outright smash and grab theft I've never seen in my life. And we're seeing it here now to the point where in nice neighborhoods we're watching Rite Aid's close. Well, what you're seeing now is exactly what was going on in the 80s where people were innocent victims being thrown in front of trains, people being shot as collateral damage or things like that ridiculous, horrible thing in the Bronx where a robber shot somebody just right after she gave him the money. What, What we're seeing now is politicians all over these progressive leftist cities in the country are sending a message to criminals, you're not going to be held accountable. And the way that we changed things in the 90s and 2000s before the Blasio was we sent a very clear message. You commit a crime, you carry a gun, you're going to jail. That's gone. Grand larceny up 92%. Uh, Grand Larcisiono up 92%. Grand larceny up 58%. Burglaries up 8%. Felony assault up 12%. Robberies up 33%. Rape 27%. That's just in January. So here's what the president says. Cut three. This spring, the Justice Department will issue a final rule to regulate these so-called ghost guns. But there's more we can do. Across the country, police departments report sharp increases and the number of ghost guns found at crime scenes. That's why today the department is launching an an intensified national ghost gun enforcement initiative. So how how bad are these ghost guns? Nobody really knows, but they're infinitesimal compared to the amount of guns that are already there. It's not a question about stopping guns from coming into New York. There's probably more guns in New York than people. And what we have to do is deal with criminals at the same time, dealing with the people who are doing straw purchases and sending guns to New York from other states. But guns are not the primary issue as far as regulating the dealers. The primary issue is getting the guns out of the hands of criminals who already have them. And that's where the president 
is missing the boat. Commissioner Safer's with us now. So, Commissioner, I want to bring you to this story you can thoroughly relate to. You know, the president's not talking about it much now, but he's doing police reform as, as an executive order. He's going to set up a database for bad cops. He is going to get rid of chokeholds and no-knock warrants. Really? Okay. Well, the NYPD was forced to pump the brakes on an arrest of a dangerous ex-con. His name is Jamie Brown in a Harlem stick-up. The same week the two police officers were killed after the DA's office initially balked at the cops' request for a no-knock warrant. Multiple law enforcement sources told the Post that detectives were looking to pick up this guy, Jamie Brown, who allegedly held up a bodega in Lenox Avenue with two handguns on December 5th, whipping out one of the pistols when he decided that the store clerk was taking too long to fork over the cash uh, and shoot the guy, right? So the issue made it all the way up to the chain of command to the chief of detectives, James Essig, costing investigators uh, valuable time. A no-knock warrant for Brown was finally issued on January 27th, allowing cops to arrest him inside a third-floor Harlem apartment. Let me ask you, uh, Commissioner, what's it like having to knock on the door knowing there's a guy on the other side armed to the teeth because people don't like the idea of no-knock warrants? And what about this DA, this DA delay? The delay is crazy. This was a classic case for a no-knock warrant. You had an individual who they knew had a gun, had used it in a violent felony, and so all he had to do, if they knocked, was shoot through the door and kill more cops. This it was ridiculous. This should have been a punt. This should have been, we know we got a violent felon who's armed. Here's your no-knock warrant. Go get him off the street. This kind of delay is going to be dangerous to both the public and to police officers. So Paul Giacomo, the president of the Detectives Endowment Association, told the Post, in my 39 years in the department, I've never heard of the chief of detectives getting involved in a simple warrant matter like this. Makes me think, sir, the worst is yet to come. In San Francisco, by the way, the police chief refuses now to work with the DA, this 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 clown Chesa Bodine, on the use of force cases and accuses him of concealing evidence that could help officers facing trial for uh, for a beating, I guess they're on trial. So the, po- the the police are not talking to the DA over in San Francisco. This fracture, you, we watched the police commission, we watched the police chief in Los Angeles just call out uh, the DA over in that city too. This is the cops are at war with their own uh, prosecutors. Well, that's what happens when you have progressive leftist politicians. You know, in Los Angeles, they went to the federal government to prosecute a police murder because they didn't believe that the current district attorney would do it properly and get the person convicted. We have chaos going on in this country right now, and we need to turn it around. We need to get off this defund police, hold police accountable uh, kind of uh, vitriol that's going on and say we support police. I mean, you know, with the, a number of cities have eliminated qualified immunity, which protects officers when they're doing their job unless they do something unconstitutional. And what police are doing is they're going to sit back and they're not going to be assertive because they're worried about their jobs and their families. It's not about holding police accountable. It's about getting criminals off the street. I believe in civil rights, but the number one civil right of citizens is to be free free from harm. And that's not what's happening in this country. What's the state of qualified immunity right now in in New York State? It's gone in New York City. The city council uh, revoked it. 
What is that? How do officers react to the fact that you could be prosecuted while making an arrest? They react by by going back to what uh, people talked about in the 80s about New York City uh, becoming blue flower pots, just hanging out. If they see a crime in progress, they'll probably take action, but they're not going to go out and get guns off the street, get drugs off the street, make sure that criminals who are about to commit crimes uh, are arrested before that happens. You know, when a crime's committed, that's a failure because somebody's a victim. What assertive policing does is make sure that crimes don't occur. Right. And, you know, the whole idea of CompSet, which is what we use th- throughout the 2000s and the uh, late 90s, was not to count arrests, but to count crimes. If you made sure a crime was down, you were doing a good, good job. It didn't matter if you made a thousand arrests. So this you make an arrest, that yeah. means somebody's a victim. So now there's a, the new plainclothes units coming back. But, Commissioner, the new plainclothes unit is not in plain clothes. They're going to be wearing different clothes, and they're going to have big body cameras. Is that the way to run a plainclothes anti-crime unit? It's certainly not the optimum way. It's, you know, I'm hoping that uh, Mayor Adams did it this way to, to kind of progressively get back to real plainclothes units. But, no, if you have a ray jacket on us at NYPD, if you have a body camera, uh, everybody in the neighborhood is going to know you're the police. It's a joke. Uh, you know, everybody knows how to fix it. Let's see if they have the political will to do it. Commissioner Howard Saber, thanks so much. Good to be with you, Brian. Thank you. Uh, John, listen on WABC. Hey, John. Good morning, Mr. Kilmey. Good morning, Mr. Kilmey. Yeah. Pleasure to speak with you again. Um, yesterday we spoke about Joe being controlled by the irrational left and um, – the reason what's going on is he's already lost moderate Democrats, and he's already lost independents. So if he was to lose the radical left, it would be catastrophic for the Democratic Party for generations. Now, the one thing we need to, to, we need to point out is that when the Democrats lose political power, they don't lose institutional power. They control our institutions, whether or not the politicians are in power. And a really good example of that is what happened to Donald Trump for four years. He had the most high seat in government, the president, but the institutions attacked him from within for four years. I think that's a good example, uh, the State Department especially. And, and then we have the, the criminal justice and we have the FBI. But law, for the longest time, law enforcement and the military were littered with conservative-minded people. And they've slowly changed that. Can I, can I make a point on that? The vaccine mandate is a purity test. And they've driven out any free-minded people from these organizations with the vaccine mandate. I definitely think that was one of their intentions for making it so stringent. Yeah, it makes no sense. Uh, soon we're going to be out of this. And how are they going to mandate that still? The Army just let a bunch of, uh, a whole bunch out. And uh, the Navy SEALs, I don't know how that's been remedied, but they did win in court. So I'll keep my eye on that. John, very insightful. Thanks. When we come back, we find out if there's more to know. Honest commentary, unique opinions, no agenda. It's Brian Kilmeade. He's so busy, he'll make your head spin. It's Brian Kilmeade. It's a thriller of a Thursday. Look who joined us. Yeah, Brian Kilmeade. He's got a new show on Saturdays because apparently he's cheaper than infomercials for nonstick pans. That is not true. It's okay. (laughs) So that was uh, another bad career move by me going on Gutfeld last night.
I'm there to promote the show and let everyone know we have a show on Saturdays, 8 o'clock, prime time, followed by then Dan Bongino and then the great Lawrence Jones. And I get that type of uh, disrespect. You give his writers a really fun opportunity to just, like, <laughs> write mean things about you. So uh, that's nice. So listen, uh, amongst our guests, we're going to have Bill Hammer and Dana Perino going to talk about uh, what matters most. I want to find out what matters most from them. I outline it then. I'll follow that up with a look at uh, this is Black History Month. I look at the history of uh, African Americans in America, where we were, where we were, how we progressed, and where we are with the Cut the Bull podcasters, including Professor uh, Riley, who comes on here all the time, uh, then and Charles Black, who wrote the uh, book Race Crazy. Uh, so we'll talk about that. Then we have a special look at what's going on with the Democratic Party by two former Democrats turned Republicans and have great success. Uh, Governor Jim Justice and Governor uh, and Governor Congressman Jeff Van Drew. Both were Democrats, got elected and switched parties because they could not recognize their party. And I'm going to talk about the history where Bill Clinton was when he got the deficit down to zero, where JFK was and where I guess you could say the party was when they were at a different place when it comes to crime. Uh, and everything else pointed out by Bill Maher over the weekend brilliantly said, you know, whatever you want to say about Ted Cruz, Ted Cruz believes you should money buy stuff, not smash and grab uh, and not pay rent. These are some of the idiotic oh, and defund the police, some of the idiotic mantras coming out of the left. So I'll talk about that. And then Carl Shimkus and I will have the second ever on television done news duel. No one will get hurt and everyone gets informed. Now, uh, without that'll come up. That'll be Saturday at eight o'clock, right? So let's find out if there's even. And by the way, just we should know, point out some good news. Instead of losing two hundred thousand jobs that many people thought, we gained four hundred sixty thousand jobs and more people added to the workforce. So President Biden actually very happy, touting job gains. Let's see if he sticks around and takes some questions, uh, because he was here talking about crime yesterday, and by most accounts was an absolute disaster. So let's find out if there's more to know. More to know. All right, Amazon is going to raise the prime price nearly 17%. For the first time, price increases for the membership since 2018. The price for Amazon Prime, which is an elite membership for just the few, the annual subscription will go from 119 to 139. The monthly subscription will also rise from 1299 to 1499. Uh, the price will take effect for the new Prime subscribers on February 18th. And for current Prime uh, members after March 25th. Uh, this is going to make a difference, right? Um, yes and no. I mean, I think it's one of those things, unfortunately, most people are just going to grin and bear it. It tends to come out automatically. And the free shipping is so convenient. And at least me, uh, the Prime, you get their stream. They have a lot of good kid shows. Kid shows. Oh, yeah. so it's TV too. Yeah, you get you do get a little extra, a lot of extra perks with the Prime membership. I will right. say. Okay, and Amazon's doing a lot of original programming now. Next, people are brushing their teeth less during the COVID COVID pandemic. Uh, one in five people are letting their oral hygiene slide. The poll of two thousand uh, adults in the United Kingdom. In the UK, that's sort of <laughs> no kidding. The UK have never the, the thing they have less interest in than even than American football is their teeth. Um, your mouth is a gateway to your overall health, Cole says so many doctors. But, of course, I mean, I, for some reason, braces, Invisalign, nothing ever gets over to the U.K. They just are not interested. They are pro-plaque. 
I don't know. Well, I mean, my question with that is, I mean, how much does it cost there, right, with their health care system? I guess I'm assuming it wouldn't cover To buy that. a tube of Crest? Well, no, not toothpaste. I'm talking about braces and Invisalign. But um, but you can sort of understand that, right? During the pandemic, you're not going out as much. So if you're home, well, what happened is I did that Invisalign, right? Mm-hmm. So I did it for two year and a half. You have to brush your teeth after everything you eat. Now I'm manic about it. I literally carry around my toothpaste and and, and my and a pocket toothbrush because I feel obsessed every time I drink something, right? I will say, You've I can attest that, right? that every time like we're traveling through the airport and whatnot, we'll grab food before the flight and you're like, I'll be right back. And you run to the bathroom and yeah, brush your teeth. I'm not going to the bathroom. I'm actually brushing my, my teeth. My question, when you're in the bathroom, do you get like side looks from people? Like he's brushing his teeth in here? I don't know. I'm so confident in myself. I don't <laughs> care what they think. Like, man, that guy wants shiny teeth. How dare he? Next, fear is contagious and people actually feel it more in a crowd. Researchers from the California Institute of Technology used a haunted house experience with 17 rooms containing various spooky threats. They found people were actually more scared when the group walking through the house was larger. The team was also found that their fear built up and increased as people moved through room to room. Scientists say when faced with fear, people are more likely to have heightened physical responses when other people are around. This is called the FASIC effect. Involves rapid changes the body experiences as a response to an event. That stuns me. Because if you're by yourself, you would think it's worse with one person. But, it, but if you're with 25 people, I'd feel not, like nothing could go wrong. But then it's also like the herd mentality, right? Like a herd of horses start running, they all run. Maybe, are we the same way? Sounds right, it. but are they running because they want exercise or are they running from something? I think from something. Right. <laughs> if, you're, if you know of horses uh, that are running around, can you find out where they're going? They want a good body. From the Fox News Podcasts Network, subscribe and listen to the Trey Gowdy Podcast. Former federal prosecutor and four-term U.S. congressman from South Carolina brings you a -a one-of-a-kind podcast. Subscribe and listen now by going to foxnewspodcasts.com. Listen to the show ad-free on Fox News Podcast Plus, on Apple Podcasts, Amazon Music with your Prime membership, or subscribe wherever you get your podcasts.